to think about that all the time. Uh, yeah, I think it actually has to do the instruction of how to meditate is a strong system. Usually everything is right, all the answers are right. Um, and um, because I like to frame the question in terms of clarity of intention. What are we trying to do? And see what really um, uh, sustains the mind in its attempt to accomplish that. What's its goal? Um, one of the, well, there are two things that I want to really, uh, we have three weeks, we have this week, next week, and next week. If I don't finish this whole thing now I do today, I'm really finding it as a three-week thing. What I wanted, really wanted to talk about again was the, um, the aspect of training of the, of, the, uh, of the paramitas, of the five, ten, ten in the Theravada tradition, the ten perfections of the heart that we've talked about in the past. One of the things I've been thinking about is how things look different. Somebody explains that. I, get out of I was thinking about, because I've been going around uh, for the past several months, as you know, talking about this new book and reading it in different places and teaching at it. I'm happy to tell you I still like it very much. <laughs> but now I read it and I think, you know, if I were writing this sentence again, I'd write it this way. And uh, I just add another caveat about this or that. And I think I should have said this other thing here. I don't think it's, you know, I don't feel the book is diminished. The book is fine. But I understand it better because one of the things that I've done now that I've written it and I've been out teaching from it is I've probably read it another 20 times because I read it every time I'm going to go teach somewhere from it. I read it again so it will be fresh in my mind about what I want to say. And it's as if I wrote down what I thought I knew, but now what I thought I knew is now teaching me. And it's been a very interesting experience. So then I said, oh, I get this way better now. Than, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too bad I didn't get it. <laughs> but I actually think that's probably true of everything, that you think you know it, and then later on. So how many you think in, in, the, in the process of your experience, say, with Buddha Dharma or with meditation, thought you understood, you said, now I think I get it, and then I had the experience of thinking, well, now I think I got it. Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> or, or anything, you know, the person that you live with, now I think I understand. <laughs> now I really understand. Now I think I understand. Who did, or about the person that you live with yourself, now I really understand. Oh, no, I missed the whole part that I wasn't seeing. So I was interested in seeing if I went back over the paramitas, which was the last thing that I paid a lot of attention to, if I would teach them differently. That was one thing. Uh, two other things contributed to it. One is I got uh, I got a, uh, this whole document over here, which I'm not going to read you the whole thing. It's <laughs> um, a document that came from the Garrison Institute. Garrison Institute is a... Um, it's kind of like a think tank retreat center, uh, just north of New York City. It's a beautiful facility. There are retreats there all the time, and largely contemplative retreats, mostly contemplative retreats, retreats for social activists, retreats for neuroscientists, retreats for um, Jews, retreats for um, um, Christians. All kinds of retreats happen there. 
uh, retreats for um, or classes for um, uh, women who have been abused. But the context is contemplative practice. And this is a, is a Garrison Institute report on the core contemplative competencies that they see as being part of contemplative practice, whether cross-culturally, Buddhist and otherwise. And then it's a summary of the different kinds of courses and teachers and lineage teachers, teachings and lineages that they have there. And so since this is a draft, they sent it to all the people that are involved uh, to say, before we put this online, we'd like you to read it and see what you want to add to it. And it's, it's very well done. I thought I'd read you the very beginning. Um, I was going to read you about the practice of mindfulness and what it's supposed to produce. But this morning, when we talked a little bit about, uh, I'd like to find the beginning part, uh, the beginning part where it talks about the history of Buddhism. Because when I said that Buddhists don't all meditate, you all were surprised, or many of you were surprised. So here's what is really more true, if I can find it. Taksabat is going to talk about contemplative competencies in various traditions. Buddhism more than any other, because I think um, just the forces that put together Garrison Institute had more of a background in Buddhism. And also because Buddhism, because of the very nature of the way that its contemplative core has been introduced into the United States, has made it more, um, has become useful in other disciplines more, say, than Tibetan Buddhism or uh, Zen practice. Let me say that again. The people who brought uh, the three major lineages of Buddhism are the Theravada lineage, of which mindfulness is the core practice and loving kindness. The Zen lineage, which developed um, at least a thousand years later, maybe a little more. Tibetan lineage that developed in between. There's Chinese Buddhism, there's um, Korean Buddhism. The Buddhism that came to America um, began, it began to come about 100 years ago. And most particularly, the Buddhism that we are studying here in the mindfulness and loving kindness meditation were brought by uh, Jack Hornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, other teachers who were not um, native teachers of that religious practice, but were Americans, went to, to study in, uh, in Asia, or went to the Peace Corps and met Asian teachings. What they brought back was not the whole of Buddhism, but they brought the, the, the contemplative practice that's the core of what the Buddha taught as a meditation. When they first came, they didn't particularly teach um, sila practice very much. Sila practice means morality practice. If you remember that this teaching was happening in the 60s and 70s, it was a very big time of, you know, challenge the establishment uh, about morality. And uh, so the idea, and, and a very big time of um, 
people being disenchanted with the religious institutions of their youth and their, actually their maturity. They found that the religious institutions that they'd grown up in often, often religious institutions that they were still in were perhaps interesting clubs to belong to and nice folks to associate with and good-hearted people who did good deeds, but um, that they did not seem to offer them anything in the way of personal transformation, even though I think they all have those core and they all have that intention. But for one reason or another, people didn't want doctrine, they didn't want <coughs> belief systems, uh, they didn't want morality teachings. They wanted really some way to be able to make their mind feel better, to have a discipline that they could practice that would lead towards peace, that would make their lives more harmonious, and that was free of dogma. And that's how mindfulness was brought to this country, how it was introduced. Now, it's true that mindfulness itself is non-parochial, definitely free of dogma. If you read the Mindfulness Sutta, doesn't say anything about you have to be a Buddhist or you have to believe in anything or have to have a cosmology of this or that or the other. It says here's a technique for making the mind clear and if you do this, you'll arrive at wisdom and try it and see. This was very appealing for Westerners. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal in uh, probably in January. You can Google that and then Google Clark's Strand so just like that, Clark Strand in the Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed, and he wrote a very interesting article about uh, the rise of interest in Buddhism. Buddhism is the fastest growing religion in this country at this point. Uh, there are more Buddhists than Jews, more self-identifying Buddhists than Jews. The Jews are a tiny segment of it, less than 2% of the, of the population anyway, but there are more, than, more Buddhists than that. More Buddhists than a lot of other. I saw a whole list. Of, but that's not what's in Clark Strand's article. What, what, what's in his article is he's thinking of, um, he's talking about three things. He's making three points. He says, I think that the masses of, uh, first of all, a lot of the growth of Buddhism has to do with the uh, large number of immigrants that have come in the last 30 years from Asian countries. So that accounts for some of it. So what accounts for most of it are Westerners interested in meditation. And his thesis is that they weren't interested in an alternative, an alternative religion, that they're interested to, in an alternative to religion. And that they really were very um, glad not to have to take on a dogma or a creed that they might not believe in or didn't fit with their lifestyle. But what they did want was a mind training that um, they could practice with a group, that, that, and a, uh, uh, even a, uh, moral, a forum for discussing morality and ethics in a world where discussing morality and ethics is important. But they wanted it free of dogma and free of, uh, free of ritual. So in Spirit Rock, we're relatively free of ritual. And I don't think it was done and I think it, it left in people the sense that Buddhism isn't a religion, it's a philosophy and a mind training. And so I really want to say it is both, actually. It is a philosophy. It does offer a mind training. 
And for many people, it's a religion in the sense of a religion. I mean, there are many people who have, uh, who celebrate it as a religion with religious holidays and who actually have the sense of uh, ancestors on other realms and even Buddhas on other realms that one might address one's supplication to, not taking anything away from it. I think it's quite beautiful. But what was really true is that you could take the peace that came so that for Westerners, when people say, uh, well, what's your religion like? I'm a Buddhist. They were like, meditate every day, you know, I try to train my mind. So the notion gets, has, I think, permeated that all Buddhists meditate. I think it would be more true to say that uh, a small percentage of Buddhists in Asian countries are really dedicated to contemplative practice. What they are dedicated to, is if they have a dedication to practice, is probably more the uh, veneration of the idea of the Buddha who perfected his heart to kindness. They are perhaps, um, and I don't know this, I know this only by hearsay, dedicated in, in Thailand, people say that everyone was the kindest person. Everyone went out of their way for them. That the, 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 the sense of a kind and a moral and an ethical society is very important. This is not taking anything away or for it, just, um, so I was very interested to read this. It says, so now I read you the history. Um, oh, and, and the, the line I left out is, how come the, this particular re, re, uh, report focuses on Theravada-based practices such as mindfulness? It says, because Theravada-based meditation spread has led to its prominence in a number of fields. Because it came without a uh, form and a ritual and a credo and a dogma that people were um, had to necessarily accept, it found its way easily into mindfulness-based stress reduction. How many people here have taken a course in mindfulness-based stress reduction? developed by John Kabat-Zinn in the University of Massachusetts. It's really a wonderful practice for witnessing and uh, experiencing one's own pain and body and mind and learning through contemplative practice, through mindfulness really, to not run away from it, not fight with it, but to relax, accommodate, and not make it worse by struggling with it to uh, encourage as much ease in the mind and body around the difficulty. So, I hardly think there's a hospital in the country that doesn't have a mindfulness-based stress reduction class in it. It's a huge uh, impact of uh, mindfulness in the country. Mindfulness, um, so where's the whole list of the other things? Mindfulness made, has made its way into classrooms through Emotional Intelligence by Dan Goldman that was way up on the bestseller list for a long time. There are all kinds of programs in schools that you read about all the time in newspapers where people are, um, the discipline is maintained by having moments of quiet, by speaking to each other in dignified ways, by uh, encouraging uh, a moment of thoughtfulness before a response, which is what mindfulness is, and which you can get, um, uh, which you can teach effectively to children in the kindergarten as well as through high school. Anybody here has seen the cartoon Blue's Clues? 
of insight, of uh, insight meditation, leads to gaining deep understanding. I'll read slow, so if you can write down any phrase that you want to write down. Deep understanding into the nature of reality. Through sustained practice, one begins to perceive directly that no thing has enduring essence or a, sus a substantive existence Separate, separate from everything else. A practitioner begins to understand the truth of suffering and its causes relating to craving, aversion, and delusion. The practice is designed to help cut through or penetrate the story or surface level of perceived <coughs> reality to see clearly and directly the root of the problem of human suffering outlined in the Buddha's core teachings and how to overcome it. Through practice, one gains direct insight into how conceptual images or representations of reality tend to create the illusion of stability and permanence, which conceal the essential and universal nature of their impermanence and emptiness. According to the teachings, this realization develops into deep knowledge of the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned reality with its inability to deliver on its promises, incapacity to provide any kind of lasting happiness, and lack of any secure refuge. Conditioned reality is seen as merely the empty phenomena of materiality and mind ceaselessly arising and passing away beyond our control and totally devoid of self or substance behind the process. 
At this point, the mind's constant grasping and craving for pleasure and its aversion to unpleasant experience ceases. The path comes to fruition finally with the experienced meditator reaching a profound equanimity which is reflected in a benevolent response to all experience. So what do you think about that? That makes sense. Why well, doesn't make sense? Does that resonate to you at all? Yeah. What part yes, what part no? What what phrase? Well the very last part <laughs> I'm so far from there. From being a benevolent, you know, seeing everything benevolently. Well, I believe it's possible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I believe it's possible for me, having started so late in life. This is very interesting. What's your name? Diane. Diane. Actually, how many of us think that, that it's possible? Oh, all right. So we all think it's possible. Everybody else think it's not possible? How many people wonder if it's possible for them? I wonder. They're certainly not there yet. I mean, everybody else who didn't raise their hand, they're sure that it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hope so. I hope so. You know, um, one of the things that I wonder about is which piece of all of those things makes it possible to stop demanding that things be different from how they are. You know, I used to say that the most important thing for me in terms of insights was seeing that things come and go. Mm -hmm. That um, this too shall pass, as it comes all the time in, in the scripture. Uh, you don't say that to people in the middle of their bereaved because that would be a terrible thing to say that to somebody because it would, would show that you don't really actually know the depth of their despair. But um, it has seemed to me that knowing in some really profound way that whatever it is, it's not going to be here forever is somehow consoling. What were you going to say about that? Well, your, ex your experience has shown you the way and you know that things not coming and going. You know that so well. Well, in the middle, yeah, I think that we all know, so here's, here's what I think is true. There are things that I know when my mind is really quiet and uh, Balance, and it's also my experience that when I am overwhelmed or um, what do you call it, um, blindsided by something that really confuses my mind with upset, dismay, in any of its forms, for that period of time, what I know isn't so available to me. It's like someone pulls up a screen in front of all the truths that I used to know, and I forgot it. It's like amnesia. Um, yeah, but you think about the worst possible things. Um, someone dear to you suddenly dies. You know, it will pass. Or the, the exquisite pain of that moment will not be the same exquisite pain always. The exquisiteness, the, 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 the 
agony of that moment will not be the same agony. You never forget that moment, but that'll pass. But in the moment, that's not what the mind is thinking. The mind is completely stunned by its agony. I have a, I have a feeling that I do think I have a feeling that I am less stunned. I, you know, I hope I don't have too many opportunities to test this out. <laughs> I really hope I don't have too many opportunities to test this out. It's one of the stories that many of you know. Uh, when I went on my first meditation retreat, um, I, uh, it was 14 days long, and uh, at the end of it, I would have said, I don't have you know, such remarkable more insight than when I came. I was just barely settling down. <coughs> I wasn't a very good meditator in the sense of being able to stay with my experience. But I was there for 14 days, and I did listen to Dharma. And many of you know that I phoned home on that last evening before I came home after the silence of the retreat had been ended. And uh, I found out from my husband that my father, who lived down the street from us, who was young, he was 65 and in very great health. He was an athlete and a runner had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and uh, which was then um, a surely fatal cancer. Now it's a more controllable chronic illness, probably with a two-year life expectancy. And so here I am standing in a phone booth somewhere in the state of Washington, and uh, they have my dad, and he says, well, you know, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this, but, um, this is what's happened to your father. And I knew, I mean, I felt terrible because my father and I were very, were very close. We were very good friends. He was an only child and I was an only child and uh, my mother was long gone. We were very close friends and it was, I was really, really tremendously pained to hear it. And I knew, because I had had other experiences in my life, when people called and said so-and-so died. And I, so I knew that normally you hear that story, that piece of news, so-and-so died, and you feel like you're gonna fall through the floor or explode or faint or something that you're in vivid. Somehow your structure cannot maintain that piece of news or scream or something. And I didn't do any of those things. Um, and, um, and I felt very sad. But I didn't, I, I knew it was different, like I didn't fall through the floor. Uh, and I, I didn't actually think of it at that point, um, like, whoa, this is different. But I thought about it afterwards. I left the phone booth, and uh, it was um, probably 10 o'clock at night, and we'd finished with the Donald talk, and uh, that's why I was making my phone call. And uh, I went out of the phone booth, and I remember walking by the dining hall, and people were having um, <coughs> tea and muffins and talking to each other, because now there wasn't any more silence. And I thought, uh, I wonder if I can go have tea and muffins. And uh, I just thought, can you have tea and muffins five minutes after you found out that your father had cancer and didn't die? And somehow I went in and I had tea and muffins. I mean, I didn't stand there and debate it, though. 
I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't tell them what had happened to me. I listened to other people talk. Was not interested in talking to strangers about my news. But somehow I thought, I thought, I thought to myself, this is remarkable. I'm sitting here having tea and a muffin, and I just found out this news, which I would not have heard in the same way at another time. And I didn't say to myself at that moment, ha-ha, I'm taking up this practice as a Christian. But retrospectively, I think it was one of those events that probably made a difference in, in confirming that I wanted to do this. But I think this knowing in some deep way <coughs> makes a difference when you know you're going to be beat up. But the other part of this, which I'd like you to think about for just a minute, uh, because as Diane said, this last, the last sentence is very interesting. Uh, at this point, when you see that, what, that everything is constantly arising and passing away, ceaselessly arising and passing away beyond our control, can't hold on to anything or really, well, you can cultivate things, you can cultivate benevolent mind states, but that's different from holding on to things. I can cultivate all the benevolent mind states. That's the thing that's cultivatable. I can't, I can't hold on to youth, I can't hold on to health, I can't hold on to certain dreams or aspirations I have for myself that won't come to fruition. That there's a there's a part of uh, the opposite of uh, I always notice that I'm doing this with my hands. The opposite of holding on is, is letting go. There's something about being able to let go. Say, okay, not this, not this, not this anymore, not this anymore, not that, which I think is part of being able to do this life with a certain amount of equanimity and ease. <coughs> I th I think I would want to add another end to this sentence. Because I'm interested in the phrase, anyway, about the mind's <coughs> constant grasping for craving and aversion to, grasping for something that, for pleasure and aversion to unpleasant experiences ceases. I wonder whether it ceases because we actually know that it won't last, or whether it, it, um, it's moderated because it, um, even moderated because it won't last. It doesn't cause so much trouble. I don't think that it turns us off to the world. I, I, I get excited when things go well, and I'm disappointed when things go badly. And I don't want to stop having an emotional response to things. I don't want to be not alive in the world. But I think that there's a way to be alive in that way where you really want, I really want that to be change in the world and peace on the earth and a better way that we share resources and all of that. So it's not that I know it won't last, so it's, um, it's more uh, the, um, I want to be able to want that without needing it and work towards it without agonizing my mind so that it can have a certain amount of equanimity about the fact that I'm not in control Everybody together is going to make a difference, but not me alone. And then the heart can, the mind, it says, can reach a profound equanimity. Not, I, I, I think I've, I'm the person that added to the profound equanimity that expresses itself in benevolence. Because I think the profound equanimity is, is just short of where I see myself wanting to go. I mean, I'm happy with it. I mean, someone said, hey, you want profound equanimity? 
I'd probably take it. <laughs> but I want profound equanimity that's backed up with the wisdom of the, of, of the monumental nature of human suffering that I think I, I need the equanimity to hold that wisdom in my mind so that I'll respond to it with benevolence because I think that it's the feeling of benevolent response which is the best feeling we can have. That's, I think, what makes us happy. When, it makes me happy, anyway. When I feel in some way my aliveness is related in some warm way to some wholesome enterprise in this world, whether I am you know, teaching my eight-year-old granddaughter how to knit. I mean, it won't be a calamity if she doesn't learn how to knit. But if I don't teach her how to knit now, she's never going to be able to knit the European method of knitting, which, because there won't be anybody around to teach her. So in doing it, I feel somehow like I am alive in the process of the continuing world to you know, going to a voter rally or knocking on doors or feeling somehow like my life makes a difference and it still matters and that getting up in the morning still matters. And that So where are you on all that business? Why are you practicing, Susan? No, I just wanted to say, too, that that goes back to the one person who's not rocking the boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do I have time to tell a story? Yes. <laughs> I, I've been Stand up, though, so Oh, okay, okay. Um, I've, been, I've been working in my, in my art in about the last three years on a body of work that I don't know what it is until I look at it, and I just got it all together, and I realized I do pit firing, that conventional knowledge is you're not supposed to do black pieces in the pit, but I do them. And they and many, many things have been breaking. But what my work has been the last few years is I take it, I take the broken pieces and I try to put some kind of meaning into it. First I accept them the way they are, broken. And then I try to put some kind of meaning into it or see some kind of beauty or put them together in a way that, that they hold. And I'm realizing that in terms of what you said today, that, um, that it's that acceptance. I didn't, I didn't realize the kind of Buddhist connection to what I'm doing. <laughs> but it's sort of like acceptance of what is. And then looking at it, because I'm looking at it in a different way rather than this is broken. This is something that is beautiful in a certain way, has meaning in a certain way. And it's it, it's it's what I've been doing. So I'm, I'm just seeing that differently. And it's I mean, I'm very excited that now it kind of puts me into what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, thank you very much for saying that. I'm very excited. We're going to have a conversation about it because I think, among, uh, you know, if I only rephrase a piece of what you say, it's about not rejecting anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is ugly or useless or whatever, or uh, you know, a lost cause. Yeah. Nothing is a lost cause if, if you think of everything as being redemptive in some way, and that you as the redeemer, it makes a tremendous joy in life yeah. that, um, uh, so I, I, I'm going to use that actually the idea that the, the that doing wholesome acts somehow uh, is itself uh, by itself the cause of happiness without even an explanation to it but it actually creates it, it reveals wisdom that that is the best way to live that that's how we're happiest and it sustains those uh, the desire to keep doing it. If you do something, you know, I remember uh, early psychology experiments where animals in cages would could find the button that if they touch this button, they get a shock, and if they touch this button, they have pleasure. Now, 
Forgetting whether it's good to do animal research or that. Leave that out of your mind. Don't think about that for a minute. Just give people enough uh, information to know that we are pleasure-oriented animals. We go back. If it's pleasurable, we do it again and again and again. We are pleasure-oriented animals if we're sitting outside and the sun shifts, so the tree is now over us and we get cold, we get up and we move out into the sun. We adjust ourselves so we feel better. If we could have as a mind habit, an established mind habit, one that we don't accidentally forget when we get startled, that if in this moment I relate with kindness to myself or to other people, like the person in the boat, we're all in peril. Um, my favorite story, I think, of, of recent stories, which probably you've heard, which is part of that new book, is my friend Tamara saying to sit in the middle of a hurricane. Another story I told about Tamara and her friend sitting in the middle of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And the crux of that story was she said, when we were most frightened, we prayed for the people in the houses around us and in the rest of Florida. Mm -hmm. And that somehow it shares a sense, it moves the awareness from Oh, poor me, here I am in the hurricane in Florida. Then may we all of us get out of this hurricane in Florida and be sustained. May we all get through this life successfully. That as soon as we are out of the constraints of uh, self-referential absorption, everything gets more pleasurable and easier. I remember that, that there's a line here where it says that nothing has a substantive existence separate from everything else. And the first time I began to hear uh, phrases like that, I thought, wow, what does that mean? I mean, here I am, this is a substantive existence, different from everybody else. You're not Sylvia, you're not Sylvia. But in a, in a way, not. I mean, we all breathe the same air. We pass it back and forth. We are, uh, we are breathing back and forth with the green trees and the grass. That's allowing us to have the oxygen that we can breathe so they can have carbs carbon dioxide so they can breathe. I can't exist here without the air and couldn't have existed without my whole family taking care of me and my family that sustains me, really. So there's a way in which you say, okay, this piece of appearance, but this is a, you know, a, a piece of the whole puzzle. is one wave in the ocean, but it's one wave in the ocean and it'll be here for a while, but it's not not ocean. Mm -hmm. And it's really related to the whole of the ocean. So it really makes the attention go from just me and my enterprise to us and our enterprise. So I wanted to, in these three weeks, and now I see we'll have two weeks for next week and a week after, but that's good because I like to give you a little homework to do. Um, it never gets out of your system, you see, if you grow up a school teacher. <laughs> it never gets out of your system to give a homework assignment, whether or not people do it. But I want to think about the paramitas next week and the week after. So I will remind you of what they were. If you have a pencil, here's the list. They are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, determination, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And I was thinking about them, thinking about them yesterday and today, 
as um, being a, a kind of a, a thing about when you go to a gym, I've just <coughs> gone back to my gym after a period of not going, and I had to get reintroduced to all the machines because they have new machines. They say this does this, this does this, this does this, this is for the thighs, this is for the calves, this is for the biceps. So I was thinking about each of these as a training. So this is for this, this is for that. <laughs> and I'd like you to think about them and see if you can figure out which is a training. Because I'll, I'll give you a hint. Um, they're all a restraint, I'd like to say. Each of them, oh, this is great. Uh, not, not why I said it's great, but it's great why we're doing it now because next week is the preset week. Next week is the second week of the month. And I really invite you to come, if you can, at 8 o'clock. What that means is instead of a two-hour class, we have a three-hour class. And um, it used to be that we brought food and we had a break in between and we ate. So it's changed now. We don't have a break in between. But you know what? If you want to bring food, you can bring food. If you want to bring food, bring food that we can pass around because it's a long time to sit for three hours. We'll take a break in the middle or something. But we won't set up tables, so don't bring complicated food. Bring food that we can pass and people can help themselves. The first hour, we really will sit and meditate on the five precepts of a lay person not to, uh, not to uh, uh, abuse any living being, not to exploit any living being, not to abuse and exploit with our speech, not to abuse or exploit with our sexuality, which are subsets of the first two, abuse and exploit. And the fifth, which is to keep a, not to uh, use any kind of intoxicant that clouds the mind. So I'm adding to that list myself today, too much television. Because different people have different problems with what intoxicates the mind and confuses. So it's very nice. That first hour is somewhat different because we sit and then we all say those precepts. I undertake the precept to uh, abstain from harming living beings and then we sit quietly. And it makes a difference if you make that if you make that intention. So if you can come at eight, if you can't come at nine. So we make those precepts, we, we say the precepts, and then we talk about them. And then we'll go on and we'll talk about the parameters. But I think that each of the parameters is a, um, is a, is a restraint against one breaking a precept. Like, for instance, one of the precepts is uh, I uh, undertake the precepts to abstain from taking that, that which is not freely given. I won't exploit people. Uh, obviously, I won't steal. I won't take what's not mine. But I mean, that's the most obvious. But there are so many ways that we're exploited. Um, I always think about the ways that um, subtly with speech, um, it's possible to exploit the people that you live with. Uh, I try not to do this. There's a way of coming in the door and saying, ah. I'm exhausted. What a day I've had. <laughs> Which makes everybody feel disconcerted and bad because you're in pain. There's another way to do that, which is more honest, to say, hello, everybody. 
You know what? I've had a complicated day. I'd really like to go out to dinner, unless everybody here wants to cook, not me. <laughs> 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 that would be the most straightforward way to do the same thing without, without being exploited. You know, you could do the A or B, but, but you haven't caused anybody, you haven't hurt anybody, it made them uncomfortable. You could have ah. Oh. You know, it's a to do it. I know how to do it. So I tell not to do that. So, but th there's a way of, uh, I think the, the, uh, the, to be exploited is to overtly or covertly take something that you think you need that somebody else has. The opposite of that is generosity. <coughs> Okay, okay, here I am. I'm taking you all out to dinner. <laughs> that's another way. You know. Now, you know, maybe that's a not so, I mean, if it's a family, it's communal resources, so it's your own. You know, everybody's generosity. But I think that practicing generosity is a counteractive to thinking you need something. Because every time we are generous about something, with something, we have made the statement that I have, I can do that. I have what to give. Not only stuff. By the way, remember to bring the CDs <laughs> next week. We don't forget the CDs next week. I have to remember that myself. And whatever we don't have, we'll give to we'll, we'll give to the prison project or to something else or to uh, the thrift shop from Saint Vincent de Paul or something. We'll do something good with it. But bring next week. Next week's not the, the share. That's the week after the bring. Um, I'd like you to think about that list and think about what is each of those parameters, you could say it's a nice thing to cultivate, what is it the antidote to? What is it the vaccine against? This question one, what's it the vaccine against? Question two. I'll do it too, so we'll all discuss these together. I better write down what I said was a question. <laughs> I have that. What is each one? The vaccine about? Vaccine against. Question two is can you see, can you? take any of which of those parameters can you use as a lens through which you can see all the others. Uh, here's the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that they are all permutations and combinations of each other. That you think generosity is generosity to the, in the ways that we think about it, giving away. You think of truthfulness as maybe um, giving away to the other person all of the same information that you have so that the playing field and the discussion that's going to follow is level, not keeping any... I've, been, I've, I've had this, uh, I've had this um, thought in my mind all week, watching and listening and reading the political debate. And I, I, I think it would be great if somebody could develop a meter that a candidate had to wear on their body, you know, like, like, a, like a lie detector. And that if they said something that was an opinion, 
I, I think my opponent will not be a good president. That's not a lie. That, that's not a fact. That's just an opinion. It wouldn't go off for opinions. But so everybody can have whatever opinion they had. Or I, even, I think, with all the credentials my, my opponent has, I don't think uh, he or she would be <coughs> worthy of this. That's just an opinion. <coughs> but as soon as you say a fact, my opponent has said, blah, blah, blah. If that's not exactly scrupulously true, a bell goes off. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a fine, or you, if you have 10 rings of your bell, you get out, you get, you get X as a candidate. You can't, you can't do it anymore. But I imagine what that would, have, what, what that would be if people were scrupulously honest. Say, this is my idea. This is what I'm going to do about this. Is what I'm gonna do. I don't actually think I'll be able to accomplish it, but this is what I'd like to do. And, you know, that, whatever. Truthfulness is leveling the playing field. Um, uh, morality is a kind of, of generosity because I think it's a, it's the gift of giving people a sense of safety. You know that you're in a moral place that people have a certain level of morality. Here at Spirit Rock, we have no locked doors. You go in the when you sleep in the residence halls. You there are no locked doors. The residence halls are not locked. Kitchen is not locked. Nothing is locked. Nothing has ever been missing. We are going to have our 20th birthday this, sum this summer. You can mark it in at September 15th, <coughs> 20th birthday party here. Nothing has ever been stolen. The gift shop and bookstore operates on an honor system. And it thrives. It does very well. You live in a place where people often come and they say, where should I pay? You say, in the box over there. Or who do I give the money to? In the box over there. <laughs> And it's so uplifting. It makes everybody's mood so good to find out that there's a place in the world where you can put the money in a box over there. And so I, that what I'd like to see, we'll see if you can do that. So, so you understand the homework? We have now looked at all your nine parameters in generosity. If you see them through generosity, how can you see them each as an expression of generosity? How can you see them each as, a, as an expression of morality? I think you see them each as an expression of renunciation. So you have to <coughs> do all those presentations. Don't not come if you didn't do the homework. <laughs> Just try to do the homework. Uh -huh. And the third, so the, I'm going to say there's permutations, okay. And the third homework is a, is a piece of a story, and then you can think about this. A friend of mine just got back from a period of practice in uh, Thailand. <coughs> In different uh, with some different teachers, and uh, was impressed with every place that she went and had a very good time and learned a lot of things. So it was a good trip. One of the teachers that she found very helpful and this is nobody that we know, so nobody whose name you would recognize, but I'm not going to use it anyway. Uh, she was telling me about her period of study. This particular teacher, who had some very uh, insightful comments about her practice, and whom she found very helpful, she said, and he was this teacher, just fabulous, the best insights about what I could or should do or where I am. And I'm a little troubled because I know some history about this person, and there's some story about some ethical violations and some, some morality issues having to do with this person's background. And, uh, stories that haven't been completely laid to rest. 
We said, what should I do about that? Um, I found this person very helpful to work with. So it makes a question, and it was a serious question for me. Um, does the fact that a person has a sincere, a, a clear vision of how things are, really, and how if we saw them the way they are, we would be liberated. And if a person has a gift for communicating, how we might experience that understanding, do they necessarily, would they necessarily have an impeccable morality? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, some people think not. Some people will think yes. So I want you to think about yes or no and why. So we'll discuss it. There are two camps in that. There are definitely two camps of people. Um, I could even do it both ways myself if I run a debate team. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? Is the question, would they have impeccable morality, or do they need to have impeccable morality? Well, that's another, permanent, that's another way of thinking about it, Nancy. Because the story about the Buddha is that his own vision of complete understanding arose because he already had impeccable morality and he had already perfected the paramitas. Oh, okay. And it was the perfection of the paramitas upon which depended his. But that could be folklore. So, uh, could you be, um, because the, the discussion I had with this person was because, well, suppose you had a French teacher or a, a, or a geometry teacher who, unbeknownst to you, didn't have such scrupulous morality, but had a gift for teaching and you learned the subject. Uh, would that make a difference? Or is the subject we're discussing apart from morality, amoral, or does it have more morality inherent in it? I think it's actually an open for discussion question. I don't think it's, you know, there are different yeah, times when I said, of course this, or of course that, but anyway, so three homeworks, I'll see you. Well, let's sit for one minute. I said, you know, after all, I talked it so quietly, and then I was talking, three minutes, one minute, one minute. and bring the CDs. <laughs> <laughs> May the merit that we accrue from our practice and study together be offered wholeheartedly for the well-being of all beings. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy. And come to the end of section. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.